Good evening and thanks for joining NTD News on this Memorial Day. I'm Stephania Cox, here are today's top stories. President Biden delivering his Memorial Day address at the Arlington National Cemetery. What's his plea as he cites the soul of our nation? Today we remember and we reaffirm freedom is worth the sacrifice. President Biden visits the site of the Texas school shooting as the Justice Department announces it'll review law enforcement's response and why it took so long. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is introducing a new bill to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. It'll prevent people from buying and selling handguns anywhere in the country. A heated exchange between Congressman Mo Brooks and Fox News anchor Sandra Smith on allegations of election fraud in 2020. They disagree on whether there's any evidence. And just to go on the record, there has been still no evidence or proof provided that there was any uh, sort of fraud in that. Well, no, that's wrong. Don't, that I don't know why you people in the media I, I just, keep I saying just, that. But and over the weekend, two boats collided, killing at least five people. One of the survivors has been charged with boating under the influence. President Biden today delivered his Memorial Day remarks and honored those who gave their lives, citing the soul of our nation. Here's what he said. Democracy is not perfect, but it's worth fighting for, if necessary, worth dying for. Calling democracy the soul of America, President Biden on Monday honored Americans who fell defending our country and its values. And still today, we are free because they were brave. Biden began Memorial Day by visiting the grave of his son, Bo, who served in Iraq and died seven years ago today from brain cancer. Memorial Day is always a day where pain and pride are mixed together. We all know it sitting here. Jill and I know it. Today's the day our son died. And prior to his speech at Arlington Cemetery, Biden laid a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier as is tradition. In his address, the president also cited Ukraine's struggle as one for freedom that unites all. There's a fight that so many of the patriots whose eternal rest is here in these hallowed grounds were part of, a battle between democracy and autocracy. Biden also acknowledged the Americans who died in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and called on Congress to provide more benefits to veterans. The nation's biggest Memorial Day parade is back to the Capitol after a two-year break. Let's take a look. With American flags waving on Constitution Avenue, veterans and spectators gather to pay tribute to fallen heroes. They made it clear that the United States will never sacrifice our beloved principles, and they sent a clear signal to authoritarian states everywhere that we will never, never back down. Lieutenant Colonel James H. Harvey III serves as Grand Marshal for the parade. He's one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen. Following Harvey is a group of World War II veterans who sparked a round of applause and cheers from the crowd. Select marching bands and veterans units from each of the 50 states joined in on the parade. This is the first parade since 2019 after being canceled 
for the two years following the pandemic. The president and the first lady visited Uvalde, Texas on Sunday. They paid their respects to the victims who died in last week's school shooting. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden offered their support Sunday in Uvalde, Texas, where gunmen killed 19 students and two teachers last week. A crowd chanted, do something. Biden responded. The Bidens visited a memorial outside Robb Elementary School, then went to a church service where some of the victims' families worship before meeting with victims' families. He went to each table individually and, you know, they both their, gave their deepest, deepest condolences. A father of one of the victims said it was all about his daughter. Uh, and that's, that's all we were here for, you know what I'm saying? He listened to everything and we listened to him. He shed some tears, we shed some tears. Others had mixed feelings about Biden's visit. When the Epic Times asked Uvalde resident Raul Nolasco how he felt, he asked what time Biden was leaving. Nolasco pins the blame on a decline in moral standards, saying, quote, it's really the breakdown of the family. The social structure, the cell of society is the family. The primary issue is the lack of a father figure. Meanwhile, the Justice Department announced it will conduct a review of the law enforcement response. One witness says he saw police fire at the gunman before he entered the school. And after that, the, the gunman fired at them. And uh, the police were defending themselves. They're trying to avoid the bullets because that's what they had. He had a real uh, heavy-duty artillery. You know, the gun was powerful. I could hear it. Law enforcement allowed the shooter to remain in a classroom at Robb Elementary School for nearly an hour, while officers waited in the hallway and children inside made panicked 911 calls for assistance. Texas officials and law enforcement have been under intense scrutiny for their delayed actions. The DOJ says the goal of its review is to provide an independent account of what happened, see what went wrong, and identify best practices to help first responders prepare for active shooter events. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And now bipartisan negotiations on possible gun legislation are underway. Lawmakers in Washington are looking for ways to prevent further tragedies. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Senators from both the Republican and Democrat side are looking for a compromise solution regarding gun laws. On Sunday, Senators Cory Booker and Chris Murphy both talked about advancing bipartisan legislation aimed at reducing gun violence. Senator Durbin of Illinois says he is confident Congress will find a compromise. I sense a different feeling among my colleagues uh, after Uvalde. Possible changes coming include expansion of the federal gun background check system, safe storage, and red flag laws. Red flag laws allow police or family members to petition a state court to order removal of firearms from an individual posing a danger to themselves or others. Other ideas being considered are putting more resources towards mental health and school security. Republican Representative Adam Kinzinger says he's open to the idea of banning certain guns. Look, I have opposed a ban, uh, you know, fairly recently. I, I think I'm open to a ban now. Uh, it's going to depend what it looks like because there's a lot of nuances. Kinzinger says he's now wondering if extra licenses or training are needed, if not bans. 99.9% .9 of people that own ARs, we all know, are not going to walk into a school and do this. But the problem is, for those that support the Second Amendment, like me, we have to be coming to the table with ways to mitigate 18-year-olds buying these guns and walking into schools. 
Former President Donald Trump spoke at the annual NRA convention in Texas on Saturday. All of us must unite, Republican and Democrat, in every state and at every level of government, to finally harden our schools and protect our children. Trump says the Second Amendment needs to be protected, calling for a drastic change to approaching mental health and increased security in schools. He says every school building should have a single point of entry, along with complete security overhauls. There should be strong exterior fencing, metal detectors, and the use of new technology to make sure that no unauthorized individual can ever enter the school with a weapon. Senator Ted Cruz also spoke in defense of the Second Amendment. We must not react to evil and tragedy by abandoning the Constitution or infringing on the rights of our law-abiding citizens. Cruz says now is the time for action and unity in protecting our rights. It is a matter of basic security. Taking guns away from these responsible Americans will not make them safer, nor will it make our nation more secure. Both Trump and Cruz say the solutions being proposed by Democrats in Washington would have done nothing to stop the recent tragedies. Shares in popular firearm and ammunition manufacturers have jumped since the recent mass shooting, suggesting investors are anticipating a rise in sales as customers rush to buy weapons and ammunition before tighter gun control legislation is possibly introduced. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today announced he's introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. If passed, it would prevent people from buying and selling handguns anywhere in Canada. Trudeau told reporters that other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. In addition to preventing the buying and selling of handguns, the bill proposes taking away the gun licenses of those involved in acts of domestic violence or criminal harassment. If passed, the legislation will also require long gun magazines to be permanently altered so they can never hold more than five rounds. This comes in the wake of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, which left 19 children dead and also two teachers. And a heated exchange between Congressman Mo Brooks and Fox News anchor Sandra Smith is gaining attention online. In an interview, Smith asserts that there was no evidence of any sort of election fraud in 2020, and Brooks pushes back against that claim. Here are the details. Republican Congressman and Senate candidate Mo Brooks had a heated exchange with Fox News anchor Sandra Smith in an interview on Sunday. It started with Smith asking about former President Trump unendorsing Brooks for the Senate race and how Brooks and Trump disagree when it comes to the 2020 presidential election. Here's the clip. And just to go on the record, there has been still no evidence or proof provided that there was any uh, sort of fraud in that. Any well, no, that's wrong. Don't, that I don't know why you people in the media I, I just, keep saying just, that, but that is absolutely false. That, that is absolutely false. You keep note, saying though, it every time, but what, that's absolutely what false. Is false sir? You had 150 congressmen and senators who absolutely disagreed with you on what you just said. So, what are you calling them? What are you calling them when you say 150? Uh, Republican senators and congressmen looked at the voter fraud issue and said there was a major problem. At one point during the exchange, Smith tried to back up her assertion by saying that judges have ruled against challenges of the 2020 election. But the congressman cited other evidence to the contrary. 
Look at the uh, special investigation of a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice who found significant voter fraud at nursing homes in the state of Wisconsin. Look at the 2000 Mules documentary that has come out. Look at how many mass mail out of ballots there were across the United States for which we have no security. 2000 Mules is a documentary by Dinesh D'Souza that presents evidence of possible illegal vote trafficking in battleground states in 2020. It was released in theaters and online in early May and managed to gross over $1 million on Rumble in its first 12 hours. It currently ranks number one on Amazon's best sellers in movies and TV. Reuters says it has fact-checked the film and did not find that it provided any concrete, verifiable evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. D'Souza responded to the Fox interview in a tweet saying he will take apart Reuters' fact-check of his documentary on his podcast this Tuesday. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband was arrested and charged for allegedly driving under the influence of alcohol on Saturday night. Records show the 82-year-old's bail was set at $5,000. Paul Pelosi was booked into jail in Napa County, California at around 4 a.m. there on Sunday. He was released three hours later and charged with driving under the influence of alcohol. He was also charged with having a blood alcohol content over the legal limit. Both are misdemeanors. Napa County is a district that Speaker Pelosi has represented for decades. A spokesperson confirmed that Pelosi's office was aware of the reports, but told news outlets she won't be commenting on the incident. The spokesperson said Pelosi was on the East Coast at the time of the arrest. Crypto and politics, could that be a good match? One of the richest crypto billionaires says he wants to donate nearly all of his wealth to make the world a better place, and some of that cash is going towards elections. NTD's Phil Zoe has more. Sam Bankman-Fried said he expects to give $100 million at a minimum to the 2024 presidential elections, which could make him one of the biggest political donors ever. Rich people donate to political causes. Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO of one of the largest crypto exchanges across the globe, FTX. With a net worth of over $20 billion, SBF, as he's sometimes known as, has said he's willing to donate almost all of his fortune, leaving behind only 1%. A lot of these political donations because they can feel regulation breathing down their necks. David Girard is a cryptocurrency analyst. He's also the author of two crypto books, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain and Libra Shrugged. Sam Bankman-Fried, he's young. He's only 30. He's a fresh billionaire. He hit this business that exploded. And suddenly he's got more money than he ever knew what to do with before. But if former President Donald Trump is involved in the next presidential election, SBF says he'll contribute up to $1 billion, which would make him the biggest political donor of all time. They want this so that they can further the cause of cryptocurrency. They've made a lot of money during this asset bubble, and they're hoping that will continue if the bubble goes down. SBF is just one of the few crypto players who are donating to politics. Coinbase co-founder Fred Ersom and Gemini Exchange founder Tyler Winklevoss has also donated to political campaigns in the past. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Five people died over the weekend when two boats collided on a river in Georgia. One of the survivors was charged with boating under the influence. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Now that summer is near and temperatures are rising, 
Many are taking the time to enjoy the sun on lakes and rivers, but boaters need to continue to remain vigilant as they get back out on the water. On Saturday, on a river in southern Georgia, two boats crashed into each other. And hold, hold position. As seen in this video, the U.S. Coast Guard rescued at least one survivor by helicopter. The Coast Guard said in a statement that one of the boats in the crash had six people aboard and the other carried three. Authorities said searchers recovered two bodies shortly after the collision, which happened on the Wilmington River. Three additional bodies were recovered in close proximity to each other in water about 14 feet deep. Authorities said at least four people were taken to hospitals. One of the survivors, Mark Christopher Stegall, who is 45, has been charged with boating under the influence. The names of the others involved were not immediately made public. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a murder suspect who's been on the run was arrested in Las Vegas over the weekend. This in connection to the gang shooting in Sacramento, California, that killed six people. And homelessness continues to be a major issue in California. But there are now new problems stemming from the large number of people on the streets. Fires. We have details on how and why an increasing number of fires are being set near homeless encampments. Find out more after the break. Another suspect in connection with the Sacramento gang shooting has been arrested in Las Vegas. He will be transported back to Sacramento to be put in jail. NTD's Eileen Ng has the update. The FBI announced they arrested Matula Payton on May 28th in connection with the Sacramento gang shooting on April 3rd. According to a Sacramento police news release, their detectives found leads that Peyton was staying in an apartment complex in Las Vegas. Their detectives relayed the information to the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. They worked together to find and arrest Peyton. Peyton is suspected for the gang-related K Street shooting that killed six and wounded 12. He will be booked into a custodial facility in Nevada and then transported to the Sacramento County Main Jail. He joins the Martin brothers who were also arrested in connection with the gang-related shooting. All three are facing murder charges. The Los Angeles Sheriff pleaded to make local public transportation and coastal beaches safer this week. He plans to increase patrol presence and enforcement amid a rise in crime in the county's hotspots. NTD Cynthia Kai has the story. Beginning June 1st, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department will start the Operation Safe Travel program on Metro Lines. The program includes increased patrolling and enforcement to address the rising number of homeless people living on the trains and to curb reports of increased assaults in the last six months. Sheriff Alex Villanueva stressed the importance of safety for travelers on the Metro Lines after the recent attacks on passengers. This is just illustrative when you have that large of a population of homeless people on the system, bad things will happen because you have people that are under the influence, have mental issues, and uh, they're in a place where people are vulnerable. According to a count last August by the agency that operates the system, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, there are about 5,700 homeless people on Los Angeles County's buses and trains. In January, a woman was attacked and killed at a bus stop near Union Station. 
Another passenger was pushed onto tracks by a homeless person at Willowbrook Station. In February, a homeless man was fatally injured by a train while sleeping on the tracks. Just last month, two female passengers were sexually assaulted at a train station. Another traveler was intentionally set on fire while riding the train. This is what, what happens when people are actually living on the trains. They're not just living on the trains, they're also urinating, defecating on the trains. There's no restrooms on the trains. They will spend the entire day and night on the train. And this is problematic. And uh, when they collide with uh, the fare paying passengers, as we've already noted, can be with deadly results. Similarly, deputies will also patrol beaches from Playa del Rey to Malibu during the summer months, known as Beach Patrol Mission. The officers make up the LASD's sheriff's response team and the mounted enforcement detail. The sheriff will also deploy the department's homeless outreach and services team to patrol the metro system and connect homeless people with services and mental health resources should they accept them. But Villanueva has been in a head-to-head -head battle with the Metro Board over enforcement. The board wants to search for alternatives to policing on trains. The increased patrols come as Angelinos are only a few weeks away from the June 7th primary election. Homelessness and the rise in crime are front and center issues for voters. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. California's fire season is not just about fighting wildfires in the mountains. Cities and counties across the state are reporting a growing number of fires related to homeless encampments. NTD's Cynthia Kai spoke to a man in the Bay Area who says he knows the details of the situation and is trying to fix it. Cities and counties across California are seeing an increase in homelessness. Oakland-based Seneca Scott, founder of an organization aimed to address the homeless crisis, says the situation is complex. Homelessness is started with the economic collapse in a way. It was exacerbated by policy, another economic collapse in 2020, and complete ineffective leadership, failed progressive policies, permissiveness of open air drug zones, and housing first as a failure. According to Oakland's biannual point in time count, the city has over 5,000 homeless individuals, compared to the 2,700 in 2019. But the increase in the homeless population is leading to another problem. The city is also seeing an increase in fires related to homeless encampments. Oakland firefighters responded to 61 encampment fires in March and 53 in April this year. Between 2017 and 2020, Oakland Fire responded to nearly 1,000 fires at encampments. Scott says the fires result from four main causes. One is people trying to stay warm. And they fall asleep with a candle. Candles are what people use primarily to heat their tents. Candles are also primarily what people use sometimes to heat their drugs. Of the four main causes, Scott says two are intentional. Arson, people blowing up and destroying cars that have been used for crimes and robberies. Happens all the time. People steal cars, they're not for the done with whatever they're doing, they torch the cars. And the last is people set this stuff on fire on purpose because you hit a check and another chant from Red Cross or another nonprofit. 
He says if someone really needs money, they will just burn their tents. Scott took us for a drive around an encampment site that stretches nearly a mile on Wood Street. It's like a third world. Worse. Third world. Worse. I've been all I've been all around the world. I've been, oh, I've been in, they have Toyota. I've been in slums in India that were not this bad. Scott told us newer-looking cars often belong to drug dealers in the area. The city council approved and adopted the encampment management policy in 2020. We just tried to make it work. Here's a list of do's and don'ts, and you cannot have any encampments 50 feet from businesses, schools, residences, or critical infrastructure, and we're going to follow that. The work's already been done, we just need some follow-through. But the city hasn't followed through with the plan. Scott is one of the candidates running for Oakland mayor and hopes for more accountability in the city. He also hopes officials can follow through with existing planned solutions. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. And over in D.C., the annual Rolling to Remember demonstration took place over Memorial Day weekend. Motorcyclists from around the nation rolled into the nation's capital to honor fallen soldiers and raise awareness about the plight of veterans. Here's more. In the nation's capital, thousands of motorcyclists marked this year's Memorial Day by taking laps around the National Mall. Spectators reflected on the importance of the day and the issues facing America. You know, there's a lot going on in the United States right now, and um, we need to remember where we came from and who we are as a people. As a veteran, uh, we're recognizing that we want our freedoms for the country, for the people here in the country, but at the same time being proud. Is America a proud country anymore? Or you have people in the country that's not following what, the, what America was truly built upon. The motorcycle rally, known as Rolling to Remember, has been going on for 30 years. The Rolling to Remember website says the annual event demands action for 82,000 service members missing in action. It also brings awareness to suicide and other critical issues affecting veterans. Also in Washington, D.C., comedian John Stewart was calling for better health care for military veterans. Among them are three and a half million veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan who were exposed to hazardous fumes from toxic burning pits, which can cause long-term health consequences. This may be one of the lowest hanging fruit of the American legislative agenda. And from the lawn of the U.S. Capitol, PBS kept up its annual tradition with the National Memorial Day concert. This year's event was hosted by Tony Award winner Joe Montagna and Emmy Award winner Gary Sinise. Thank you for joining us for the 2022 National Memorial Day concert. In its 33rd year, this concert is an American tradition and in so many ways the memorial service for the country. It's how all of us can join together to unite in tribute to all who serve, have served, and their families. And most importantly, so we can remember the brave who gave their lives for our country. Sitting in the audience were Gold Star families, veterans from World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, including those still being treated for injuries. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up at the French Open, it's Nadal versus Djokovic yet again. Who's the greatest of all time? NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the case for each. Hurricane Agatha heads towards coastal regions of southern Mexico, causing locals to brace for impact. Extremely dangerous flooding and landslides are among the warnings as the storm reaches near Category 3 strength. 
that and more here on NTD News. Residents in southern Mexico are preparing for Hurricane Agatha, this year's first named storm in the eastern Pacific. The National Hurricane Center is warning the hurricane could lead to extremely dangerous coastal flooding. Here are the details. Residents along coastal Oaxaca, Mexico are bracing for Hurricane Agatha and the storm surge coming with it. Windows are boarded up and boats taken from the water and moved away from shore. The hurricane is expected to make landfall late Monday afternoon, but strong winds and rain have preceded its arrival. By mid-afternoon, Agatha's sustained winds remained at around 110 miles per hour. This is nearly Category 3 strength. Wahana is forecast to see 10 to 16 inches of rain. The National Hurricane Center is warning that storm surge is expected to produce extremely dangerous coastal flooding in areas such as tourist hub Puerto Escondido. And while some tourists have fled the area for safer regions, over 5,200 remain. Civil protection authorities say more than 80 towns are at risk of floods and landslides. Winds and storm are expected to dissipate by Wednesday. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And the latest developments on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. President Biden said today that the U.S. won't send long-range rocket systems to Ukraine that could potentially hit Russia. Officials in Kyiv recently requested the weapons. Biden's comment comes after some news outlets reported last week that the White House had authorized the move. And in Ukraine, a local leader admits that Russian troops have entered the outskirts of a key city in the Luhansk region, coming closer to controlling the whole province. Ukrainian President Zelensky accuses Moscow of launching a relentless artillery barrage to seize the city where critical infrastructure and 90% of buildings have been destroyed. NTD's Earl Rhodes has more. Russian troops have entered the outskirts of the Ukrainian city of Severodonetsk. The regional governor of Luhansk province said on Monday, describing fierce fighting over the ruins of a city that has become the focus of Moscow's offensive. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, said Russian troops have destroyed the town's critical infrastructure and damaged 90% of buildings. There is no communication in the city, and there is constant shelling. Capturing Severodonetsk is a fundamental task for the occupying contingent, and they do not care how many lives they have to pay for this attempt. Russian state TV on Monday aired footage of Severodonetsk, claiming it was almost under the total control of separatists. If Russia can capture Severodonetsk and its smaller twin Lysychansk on the higher west bank of the Seversky Donetsk River, it will hold all of Luhansk, the first of the two Donbass provinces that Putin had placed at the heart of his campaign. Ukrainian forces refused to withdraw from the ruins of Severodonetsk, despite being under incessant shelling. In Donetsk, the other province of the Donbass region, Dimitro, a former English teacher, said his biggest fear was being told to stop fighting and have a ceasefire and negotiation. Negotiated settlement can only happen on Ukrainian terms, and at present, if it happened, it would be a horror. 
it would be the end of the president's career on all of them, because people want to defend Ukraine, not for Zelensky, but for Ukraine. But by focusing its effort on a battle for the small city of Severodonetsk, Russia might be leaving other territory open to eventual Ukrainian counter-strikes. The past few days have seen initial signs of a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south, where Moscow is trying to consolidate its control over Kherson province, captured in the early weeks after it launched its invasion in February. The TASS news agency reported on Monday that the Russian-controlled Ukrainian region of Kherson has begun exporting grain that was harvested last year to Russia. A senior local official told TASS that the administration was also working on the supplies of sunflower seeds to local and Russian processing plants. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. Chaos unfolded at the Champions League final in Paris on Saturday. The match was delayed by more than 35 minutes after some fans struggled to enter the stadium despite many arriving hours ahead. Local police then used tear gas to control fans after. They say people without tickets forced the barriers to get inside the stadium. French government officials held a press conference today about the incident. They blamed a massive fake ticket ring. But some in the UK and France say it was other causes that undermined the match. NTD's France correspondent David Vivas has more. Pictures widely circulated in social media on Saturday of Liverpool supporters storming the fences of the Stade de France at the Champions League final. French police tear-gassed protesters. The game was delayed and trouble continued after kickoff. While the unrest brought anger and sadness from both France and the UK, the official reactions and comments were very different. A number 10 spokesman said the UK wants to see the treatment of Liverpool fans in Paris fully investigated. He described footage from outside the Stade de France as deeply upsetting and disturbing. Liverpool Mayor Joan Anderson was at the final and said behaviour from the French police was absolutely disgusting. There were also reports that lots of Liverpool seats were empty, meaning people with tickets weren't able to get in. Look at all these poor people who've done exactly the same as me. I don't even want to watch this game anymore now. I don't want to walk in such stadium. French Minister of the Interior Gérald Darmanin blamed the unrest on a massive industrial-scale ticket fraud coming from UK supporters. We regret a disorganization in the admission of British supporters, contrary to that of Spanish supporters, and we have observed that 30,000 to 40,000 British fans found themselves in the start of the France either without a ticket or with fake tickets. The minister said out of 30 arrests inside the stadium, half were British. But Liverpool left-back Andy Robertson challenged the fake ticket allegations. The club and somehow somebody told one of my mates that um, he's got a fake ticket, which I can assure definitely wasn't because it was, you know, obviously through me. So then obviously the French police decided to throw tear gas on, on um, fans and families and things like that. So, like, it's, it's not been well organised. In French media reports, a police union official said the organizers did not allow people to filter into the stadium in an appropriate way, and that without the police, the whole event would have been a disaster. The officer also pointed out that interference came from many local thugs, 
Video shot by a Spanish reporter shows thugs climbing fences on the Spanish side of the stadium. The official narrative was also challenged in French newspaper Figaro, which says local thugs, not British supporters, undermined the match. This claim is also supported by political opposition parties. Nationalist Marine Le Pen said the blame is on the Minister of the Interior for not being able to quell the violence from local thugs. Member of Parliament Eric Ciotti said it's cowardly behavior to point out only UK supporters for what happened. Ciotti is leading calls for an inquest to find out what really happened. This is not the first time violence has happened at the Stade de France, which is one of Paris' poorer suburbs. Resolving the security issue is a top priority, as Paris prepares to host the 2024 Olympic Games. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. The Mona Lisa was left shaken but unharmed Sunday. That's when a visitor to the Louvre tried to smash the glass, protecting the world's most famous painting. He then smeared cream across the glass surface in a climate-related publicity stunt. The perpetrator was a man disguised as an old lady. He jumped out of a wheelchair before attacking the glass. A video of the incident's aftermath shows a Louvre staffer cleaning the glass. Another video posted on social media shows the same staffer finishing cleaning the pane covering the Da Vinci masterpiece. While another attendant is seen removing a wheelchair from in front of the painting. The Louvre was not immediately available for comment. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The Golden State Warriors are the betting favorites to win the finals over the Boston Celtics. That's according to Caesars Sportsbook. Golden State, which is in the finals for the sixth time in eight years, opened the season at 10 to 1 odds to win the title. Boston opened the season at 50 to 1 odds, but came on strong in the second half and won a pair of Game 7s, including last night's close call. The Celtics led the Heat by 13 with three and a half minutes left. But a Max Strews three with 50 seconds remaining punctuated an 11-0 run that cut the lead to two. After Boston came up empty on offense again, Jimmy Butler's fast break three-point attempt with 20 seconds left came up short and the Celtics held on for the win. The Warriors have been waiting to see who they'll play since finishing off Dallas last Thursday. Golden State is hoping to get back Gary Payton II, Andre Iguodala, and Otto Porter Jr. back from injuries before the series starts. Another championship would break a franchise tie with Chicago for third most all-time with seven. Should the Celtics prevail, it would be their 18th and would put them one ahead of the Lakers for most ever. Game one of the finals is Thursday night in San Francisco. At the French Open, Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic will play Tuesday for the record-extending 59th time as the two battle for a spot in the semifinals. Djokovic leads their all-time series 30-28. He's the only one who's even had a little success in beating Nadal here with two wins in nine career matches. Nadal, who's won a record 13 titles at Roland Garros, has a mind-boggling 102-1 record against everyone else. That includes a 6-0 mark against Roger Federer. The match would also continue to alter the greatest ever debate in men's tennis. While Nadal's 21 major titles are one more than Djokovic or Federer, Djokovic's winning record against the other two and most weeks ranked number one balance the scales. A 22nd major title here for Nadal would give him some breathing room. Meanwhile, should Djokovic win and go on to win the tournament, he would be either ahead or tied in every major category. 
elsewhere at the French, Carlos Alcaraz will face Alexander Zverev in a battle of top 10 players with the victor facing the winner of the Nadal-Djokovic match. On the women's side, Americans Coco Gauff and Sloane Stephens will battle it out in the quarterfinals Tuesday. The 18-year-old Gauff has yet to drop a set in her four matches thus far. And on the ice tonight, Carolina hosts New York in a winner-go-home Game 7. At 7-0, the Hurricanes have yet to lose a home game this postseason. Meanwhile, the Rangers have just one playoff road win, though it was a critical victory in Game 6 against Pittsburgh while facing elimination. The winner will take on two-time defending champion Tampa Bay in the conference finals. That's all for your sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, a New York-based nonprofit organization trains prison inmates to raise service dogs for veterans, police officers, and first responders. NTD's Evelyn Lee visited the puppies and learned how the organization works. And we travel to Chateau de Fontainebleau in France. The 800-year-old castle was recently restored. NTD's David Vives finds out what it feels like to enter the castle like a king. That and more after this short break. There's a nonprofit service dog organization that provides puppies to veterans, police officers, and first responders. It's called Puppies Behind Bars and comes with a very special story. NTD's Evelyn Lee visited the organization and the puppies to find out how it works. This is Detective Jenny. Oh, good girl. <gasps> so smart. One of three emotional support dogs at the New York Police Department. I mean, she had the rank of a detective just because that's my rank. Her handler, Efren Hernandez, spent 21 years in the Army before retiring in 2011 and transitioning into the NYPD. Hernandez has insight into what kind of an impact rising crime rates and war can have on both officers and soldiers. It was demanding. It's, it's a mission that um, most folks who have never served may not understand the, the, the job behind it and what it takes. The pups are trained to bring comfort to those serving the country. They know around 55 commands for that purpose. They shake paws, salute, or simply snuggle up to people. We deal with crisis situations, uh, suicidal officers, uh, you know, suicidal civilians. And I think just having the dogs in our office is, is a relief for us, too. Teresa Mayen handles the youngest pup in the mix, Glory. I visited the organization that provides these dogs, Puppies Behind Bars, and sat down with President Gloria Gilbert Stoga and Executive Vice President Eric Barsness. They say providing puppies to police departments is a relatively new development. It's always a position with a lot of stress, but I think since the murder of George Floyd two years ago, being a cop is tougher and more stressful than ever. Gilbert Stoga says it's because of their ability to respond to the country's needs that they're still going strong. The organization that started out with five puppies has now raised around 2,500. It was established in 2006 primarily to grant dogs to combat veterans. And the certificates on the wall speak for themselves. We have had dogs deployed to Afghanistan when America was at war with army chaplains. And um, 
it gives me the chills even to talk about it now, but after every single critical incident, so if someone got blown up, certainly if there was a death, if there were major in injuries, the whole unit had to sit down. Anyone who wanted to talk about what happened, they lost a buddy, the buddy lost a leg and is now being medevac back to Germany and then the US. And this was mandatory and nobody would talk and nobody would cry and the soldiers would kind of sit there and like, okay, you know, when's it up so I can go back to my barracks. She says the army asked for dogs to be deployed with the chaplains and with the dogs, things changed. And the soldiers started talking and they started crying and these debriefings became what they were intended for, which was talk about the pain and the fear and the loss and the dog allowed that. And that's not all this ambitious foundation is doing. Like the name suggests, these dogs are raised behind bars, meaning incarcerated individuals benefit as well. I see the difference that the organization makes all the time. Um, I mentioned uh, letters from our incarcerated puppy raisers. They write to the sponsors, the donors who name our dogs. When I worked here for about six months, sitting reading one of these letters at my desk crying, and I said to Gloria, you know, how long will the crying go on? And she said, it will always go on. From puppy raisers that feel like they can be part of humanity again, to traumatized veterans finding courage to leave the house again. Barsness says puppies behind bars will continue to do remarkable things for people. Maybe even things they don't know the dogs can do yet. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. When you think of Mexican food, what comes to mind? Fajitas, tacos, enchiladas, but what about mole? It's so essential to Mexican food that even a festival is named after it. Here's the story. Over the weekend, Chicago's Mexican community hosted a three-day Mexican festival, Mole de Mayo, honoring the Mexican cuisine mole, meaning sauce. Alex Esparza, CEO of Economic Strategies Development Corps, the organizer of the event, says the event honors mole and more. Mole de Mayo, mole itself is a sauce, it's a Mexican uh, cuisine, it's from uh, Mexican gastronomy. So what it means for us is the science of gathering. So we bring the cuisine, we bring the lucha libre, we bring the art display. So it just, it just spells out Mexican culture all the way around. Mole is considered Mexico's national dish. It is used widely as a dressing for meat and grains. It's made of many ingredients, so it has a huge variety of flavors. Every year, the judges choose one winner at the festival. Carlos Aguilar, one of the judges, says the moles are judged beyond the taste. We qualify flavor, uh, how does it look, the history, the recipe, presentation, uh, texture. This year's winner is Ivolina's Tamales, owned by Lina Hernandez. She's won five years in a row. Hernandez's mole recipe has been passed down from her grandmother. She shares her secret recipe. <laughs> My secret, the love, the passion, you know, the, we always, we make the mole, we are happy. In addition to Mexican cuisine, visitors also got a taste of Mexican dancing. Selena Sanchez is part of the indigenous dance group Aztec Dance. The Aztecs are an ancient civilization in Mesoamerica, now known as Central America, between 1300 and 1521. Their dance is an important ritual honoring their gods in Mexican culture.
We take turns dancing, everybody does their own dance. Um, each dance represents a different thing, like rain, the corn dance, the fire dance. Um, so yeah, everybody just takes turns like going around the circle and um, giving the dance to everybody else until it completes. Mole de Mayo has been a popular event in Chicago's Mexican community, the Pilsen neighborhood, since 2009. In 2019, it received 130,000 people over the three-day festival. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. Visitors can now walk up the King's Stairs at Chateau de Fontainebleau, just days after its full restoration was completed. The 800-year-old castle was a jewel of the French Renaissance. NTD's France correspondent David Vives finds out what it feels like to enter the castle like a king. Many details count when you are the king of France, like how to enter your palace in the most royal way. Louis XIII found a solution. He had the best craftsman of his time build a magnificent horseshoe staircase under which his eight-horse carriage could drop him off at the entrance of Fontainebleau Castle outside Paris. These stairs have now just been restored to their immaculate white color. Director of Buildings and Gardens Arnaud Amelot says this masterpiece showcases one of the best craftsmanship achieved by stone cutters and sculptors. You can see the scale of this staircase with its very, very curved wings. It's curved like arms that welcome guests. It's really a ceremonial staircase built for that. They had to welcome the king and the royal court arriving for his holidays. Therefore, this staircase had to be of the highest quality. This is why one sees all its sculpted decorations, which animate the balustrade and staircase. Around a hundred of craftsmen worked on this restoration project. Amlo says the task was divided into many different parts, all of which required a special expertise. The staircase, as does the castle, showcases different symbols. Here we have a caduceus, a symbol from Greek and Roman mythology, which was the attribute of Mercury. Mercury was the messenger for the gods. We can see so many details. For example, these wings. They are all crafted in a different way. The winestone staircase was designed for a slow, pleasing walk. It's worth trying out the king's way of walking. It's nice, isn't it? Yes, it's beautiful. Each step you make feels really light and pleasant. According to legend, King Louis Descent's favorite hunting dog discovered a source of water here. This spring marked the location of the castle. In the 16th century, King Francis I turned Fontainebleau into the royal residence. This was the time of the French Renaissance. The French Renaissance marked the moment where castles were no longer designed to defend the kingdom, but to showcase for refined arts such as sculpture, painting, architecture. A telling example is this gallery named after Francois I, which is the first in the way it is designed. At that time, Italian artists came to France responding to the king's invitation. They applied their skills in the castle decoration, and French artists and craftsmen found inspiration for their own work. Before Versailles was built under Louis XIV, French kings used to live at Fontainebleau since Francis I. And it's not hard to imagine the famous Hall of Mirrors being inspired by this gallery, crafted by Italian artists. 34 kings and two emperors resided at Fontainebleau. All of them left traces on the artwork in the castle's galleries and rooms. Fontainebleau embodies the history of France. It is a succession of kings from the medieval period until almost the end of the 19th century. 
Each king had the desire to contribute to the building, to transform, to embellish the castle. It is a family house, and they all lived here in the same way. There are many, many more secrets and mysteries to discover here at the castle. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.